Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute. And today we are joined by Jonathan Wharton. And Jonathan Wharton, or really Professor Wharton, is an associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven. Because not only is he a professor, but he frequently lends his expertise to editorial pages across the state, including Connecticut News Junkie and, of course, Hearst. And we are delighted to get him to speak with us today. So welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate the invite. One of the things that really piqued my interest was one of your recent pieces for Hearst. And it was about what makes a place livable. And as you know, livability is something that has been front and center of many people's minds um, because of of the discussion during the session about housing and other livability issues. And so would you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, what academics like you generally think about when you talk about livability? So traditionally, the model has been that when it comes to livability factors, uh, it tends to center around um, scores related to housing, public safety, education. Those tend to be kind of the premium, the top three areas. Uh, You know, it's rare to consider other factors like employment, transportation uh, as well. But I think that what's interesting in this instance of what Connecticut Insider did, which is obviously an offshoot of Hearst Media, was that, you know, they provided an assessment of these areas, not so much in public safety, which is unfortunate because that was missing and glaring in there, but they want to spend more time on kind of the amenities dynamics of things beyond um, schools and even um, housing. Uh, They wanted to examine something like restaurants and bars and hospitals, train stations and uh, airports, which are kind of unique because in looking at these other resources amenities, you rarely see that in these kind of uh, you know metrics in these kind of scoring uh, methods when they're looking at livability factors. What I thought was very interesting is that Norwalk was ranked as the state's top ranked city for quality of life. Yeah. When you all are, are looking at things like that, it seemed like transportation was a big part of that. Absolutely. And I kind of emphasized that in my last editorial there because, of course, they have four Metro North stations. I, t- I think people tend to forget we're waiting as a stop, <laughs> and it is <laughs> Norwalk. It's not. It's a hamlet, or at least a community within Norwalk. I think some people tend to forget, or they think that it's somehow in Darien, since it's right at the border. But yeah, I would emphasize that, and I didn't quite stress this about Norwalk. The demographics are just, you know, very, uh, you know, heterogeneous. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, one diversity but several diversities um in terms of in terms of ethnicities and race and absolutely in terms of income and housing um the kind of diversity that you see in norwalk stands out because you don't see oftentimes as many let's say um rental units or dwellings let alone home ownership rates uh, the way it is in a lot of cities most cities tend to hover somewhere around believe it or not like hartford bridgeport new haven and new haven is a little higher but it usually is around 20 25 percent for example home ownership new haven is somewhere if i remember correctly closer to 35 percent it's a little higher because of the incentives that take place there uh, norwalk is, is close to that so i think that the housing dynamics as it comes to affordability but also home ownership rates could be a consideration too for some of this. Talk a little bit about streetscapes. 
I hadn't, you, you know, in your column, you talked about the importance of streetscapes. And I think that's something that people who aren't familiar with the whole discussion of li- livability, you know, that's not something I usually think about the importance of and what it does and all the rest. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Certainly. And and I should have emphasized that um, streetscapes seem to be more uh, understandable, relatable, for example, traditionally European cities where you have maybe cafes or restaurants or coffee shops or things that are taking place out there on promenades or close off streets or just even sidewalk action and why a part of it is it goes back to uh you know what many urbanists see as having eyes on the street um something that jane jacobs emphasized in her work on the life and death of, of american cities by having eyes on the street ideally your neighbors community out there uh, it kind of reinforces some dynamic of community policing without the police because everybody's aware, they're alert to what's going on. And it's kind of an interesting factor to kind of create a community of connecting among your neighbors, um, among uh, businesses, uh, you know, uh, among residents in general. So they know what's going on in the community, the place and space. And so in some urban areas, you see more activity on the sidewalk by uh, having this kind of streetscaping taking place. So that's why, Carol, you notice I emphasize something like the Pratt Street Initiative that we see in downtown Harford as an example, right? It might be one glaring example where you have all the businesses kind of lined up, you've got all the sidewalk action taking place, and it kind of engages in connecting the community in, in a certain specific place. By the way, it's not unique to just downtowns. Um, you know, there's some communities where you see the same thing in commercial districts. I should say it's not just surrounding housing, but that commercial district is important to have the small businesses there. That's got to be a key element to this. And I know for many of your listeners and certainly your membership, uh, the importance of the private sector playing that kind of partnership uh, dynamic is, is so critical. That's got to be emphasized. Yeah, I mean, and that's why we, you know, we care so much. Um, just aside from, um, you know, just aside from people being able to do it if that's what they choose to do, it's why people in government should care about it. Um, yeah, there are all know. kinds of incentives where you can do that. Uh, quite frankly, you probably already know this. You know, you could do this through zoning, um, and even abatements. There are all kinds of tax incentives and grants for something like this. Our thought always is the best incentive is just having a climate where flowers can bloom. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people will always seize opportunities if there's opportunity to be seized. As people are looking at livability, you know, it seems as though there's this effort, uh, a sort of artificial effort in a way to try and and knock cars, you know, get cars out of the picture. Is that something that you can really do in a lot of the communities in Connecticut? Yes and no. Um, it really goes back to how a city's plan are laid out. And so you can designate specific corridors. That's usually the way you kind of do it is by identifying um, certain areas um, where you can maybe do traffic calming measures, um, or you could at least what they like to call a street diet, where you kind of narrow, narrow the streets a bit. So it could be more walkable, uh, more bikeable. Um, and so the technical term is complete streets by having at least a street where it's not just centered around the automobile. Um, you know, that's a starting point, but it doesn't have to be writ large. It does not have to be an entire city or entire community. It's just a matter of identifying a specific area where you could maybe have, for example, that promenade of something like Pratt Street or 
I love pointing out to the example, as, as many of your listeners and members know, West Hartford, my hometown. And I think you remember in my piece, I emphasize that the Harper Kearns model of looking at a place like New, like uh, West Hartford, where they identify specific areas to make it more walkable. And so Blueback Square comes to mind um, as an example. So it doesn't have to be an entire city or neighborhood, but it can be certain areas or certain corridors that can be identifiable um, to make it more walkable. And And some of those places can be really fun as long as they make plans to have sort of sufficient parking. Um, Because, you know, sometimes it seems as though there's like this fabulous plan to have a street diet or walkable areas, but then they don't put enough parking around it. You know, not necessarily you know, and but you see these examples, and um, and then it just is a disincentive to go there because you'd like to walk, you'd like to enjoy the promenade, but if you get there, there's not going to be anywhere to park to do it. Right, and so one thing that we've seen a lot of planners and zoners do is that you know they will designate or require a certain number of parking spaces per unit, for example, in apartments or in condominiums. Uh, if you're going to do it in a more densely area. Um, so you could certainly do that by having more uh, available private and public parking um, there. But that's got to be at least kind of worked out into the metrics um, so that you're not having th- this this problem of parking and, and even traffic that could occur by, by doing these kinds of measures. As we also look at um, livability, you know, this has become something that the legislature is uh, taking an active interest in um, some of these um, housing measures and low-income housing. Um, You know, our view at Yankee Institute always is that a lot of these things are are very, you know, are best handled um, at local levels often. I mean, you have to reach agreement to make sure that people of modest means can be accommodated. You know, you have to be able to do that. But then you also have to be able to work with people of towns rather than simply handing down mandates from Hartford, where people often aren't familiar with the ins and outs of of a town and where a lot of the lobbying is driven by developers. Is that, I mean, because otherwise you can end up with people who have no stake in a town sort of ruining the livability of a town by putting in enormous developments in the heart of villages which essentially ruin their character. I don't know. Is that, I mean, is that a fair critique or what is, what are your thoughts on that? The thing about county government is that it's at least an approach. It's not, you know, a hundred percent proof. It doesn't quite work out completely that they can resolve, address these matters of the differences between the cities and the towns. But at least in some instances, you see some uniformity across several towns or even across the county if that's possible when it comes to planning and zoning use. I've always been a skeptic of of county government, uh, given our strong town governance, as you know, just because it seems like one more layer of government to sort of get involved and take your tax money. But what you're saying is that that it imposes a certain level of uniformity that otherwise takes another level of negotiation um, without it. Right. And then the state tends to, which we're seeing this right now, emphasize or mandate a certain series of rules uh, for good or for bad. And so sometimes what doesn't get fleshed out are the differences between these municipalities. Having at least a layer of government or some kind of entity kind of, you know, finding a way to negotiate halfway could be at least a starting point. All right. Still not 
a good enough reason, but I take your point, Jonathan. And so, um, and so that's where we are right now uh, is, you know, because it does seem to me the state has been on a tear for a good number of years to try and, um, you know, come in and uh, impose mandates that will fundamentally change the character of Connecticut towns, for example, by um, mandating, you know, well, actually trying to take over zoning a few years ago, as you'll recall, during the Malloy administration, there was an effort to take over zoning within, I believe, a two mile radius of every Metro North station. Right. They they cut that back on these recent proposals instead of making it like less than a mile. Right. But even so, you know, given the size of some of our smaller towns, um, you know, that's a substantial chunk of the town. And, you know, it makes you wonder because um, one of the one of the things Connecticut still has going for it is, you know, the sense among people who have perhaps grown weary of a large city is that you can go and have a small village feel Mm -hmm. if you end up with for example, the state taking over and putting in big housing buildings in the heart of these small towns, has Connecticut lost um, one of the chief drivers of, of or one of its chief attractions for people moving here? And what does that do, for example, to the livability of a town? Um, because doesn't it and then sort of all at once make the population denser and change sort of the calculation about, uh, you know, the number of grocery stores or the, you know, availability of things like sewer lines and all those sorts of things. What what are your thoughts on that? I think it really depends on identifiable communities or towns where you might see more stress factors as it relates to, yes, uh, resources, uh, like you're emphasizing water sewer, um, even education. We can't forget the school systems too in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, density can at least in some ways, uh, you know, prevent sprawl, if you will, or suburban sprawl, where we see a lot of this as a concern. I'm thinking, for example, in Milford, where we see some of the concerns surrounding traffic and even, you know, on Route 1. Um, you know, there are ways of kind of curtailing or finding ways of making a community a little bit more dense when it comes to traffic to prevent that kind of thing from taking place, particularly if you have more transportation options. Um, the kind of development you're talking about that's unique as a feature uh, around transit stations is something called transit-oriented development. Yes. Pods can be helpful in some instances, maybe not across the board, but it's a matter of the towns being on board with it before the state is going to kind of, you know... In, in, Muscle its way in and I tell everybody to what say. to do. <laughs> right. Or offer or offer on purpose that the carrot and the stick, right? By saying, well, we'll give you additional monies or grants if you build this way and do it that way. Um, but then we also know is interesting that a lot of the, you know, the Ned Lamont administration wasn't, they weren't trying to push it too much. They were trying, it didn't really go anywhere. And of course, our General Assembly didn't go ahead with it. So, um, you know, there's always talk about this. I- I'll tell you one thing, Carol, it's always fascinating me. I think you know this from maybe even a couple months ago when I wrote about um, Hochul and what she was trying to do there in New York as governor because yes. such resistance to it in Westchester County for building out near the train stations and not being inclusive of towns uh, a little bit more so. And by the way, this kind of housing we're talking about, it, it wasn't just an intentional for low income, but really for middle income. And there was even some talk of vocational 
housing so that those in public safety and teaching in the public sector could have at least a possibility of residing or renting or owning uh, in these identifiable places. Um, and so the thing is, is that it was kind of, it, it really met with a lot of skepticism in a place like Westchester County. Yeah. And I do think it's important, again, to be able to work out ways that people who, you know, who work in a community or people who want to come and, and be part of a community, people of modest means can can do that. I mean, it, it has to. I think, however, you know, it is important for state government to work in partnership with towns and um and and listen you know in terms of location and ways to do it because i think there are ways to do it um that are respectful of of towns um and ways to do it where you really do have a state government coming in and calling the shots localism obviously as as you know um jonathan makes a lot of sense especially in a state like connecticut um, but just in general, because the more the more decisions can be um, devolved, the greater proportionately every citizen's voice can be. And that's why I'm always a big fan of of all decisions of government being made on the the lowest level of government that can handle them, um, because that way, proportionately, every citizen's voice is the loudest and the most able to be heard. I have well, a better, you, you know, as our listeners no, you know, you have a better chance of being able to talk to your first select person in the grocery store than you do your your governor and a better chance of talking to your governor than you do the president. That's why I love local government as much as possible and then state government and then federal government. Right. And I mean, that's kind of the basis of New England governance after all, right? Is yes. It- and it's why I love it. Yeah. And more town green involvement, the more citizen participation, but of course, in, in Connecticut, you know, the the towns are just so different. So, um, you know, and that's why, you know, going back to the differences between the governors, Lamont and Hochul, they were just so different on how they're going to emphasize, uh, you know, transit-oriented development or mixed-income housing. You know, Hochul kind of held up the state budget for months. I think you might remember that. Yes. Right. She held that over because she couldn't get anywhere with uh, when it came to housing or transit-oriented development. Uh, Lamont had claimed or suggested that, well, you know, I'm agreeing with it. I'm on board with it. But then he didn't really push back on it. So he kind of left it alone. So it's interesting to see the different dimensions between both governors. And their it, it is. It is. And, you know, as we talk a little bit about housing and livability, um, you know, you've also written um, very, um, you know, with a lot of discernment about um, about age ages and who's mm. staying in Connecticut and who's leaving and their ages and why that might be. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, I think that piece was back last month, as a matter of fact, again, with Hearst Media. It was interesting to kind of sift through the recent data, um, you know, for the last year's census where uh, we're seeing, as I said, you know, kind of the sandwich generation, you know, those between uh, the 40 to 60, give or take, mostly Gen X, where, you know, they're taking taking care of, uh, you know, younger members of the family, uh, their children, for instance, in some instances, and then also taking care of older uh, you know, members of their family. And so the pressures, the demands and the stress that comes with that financial uh, as well as time has has become a concern. And so uh, livability, going back to your, your main argument here, can be a concern for some generations more so than others. Um, so in Connecticut, at least, uh, it, it seemed, according to recent data, that a, a lot of that sandwich generation or Generation X, you know, have left Connecticut. Now, for what reasons? It doesn't, it's not consistent. There are different reasons. And we couldn't, it, 
didn't seem to be determined from the census data that was exactly related to the economics here. But it's been in that way in the past. Let's say that. It's been a concern in the past about that. Whereas uh, Connecticut has actually aged out. We've become an older population in Connecticut now. Um, and so we're one of the oldest states in the country now. And actually, New England has no surprise. I think when Maine was the oldest state, if I remember correctly, uh, you know, we have an older population now where we're living longer, we're staying here longer, and we're not really leading at least those who are over 60, not nearly the numbers we once did. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Especially um, given the stereotype of the snowbird. Yes. And, and it makes me wonder if you sift through the data even more, how many people have you know, let's say another house elsewhere, because that could likely happen where they may be spending six months in one day here or someplace else, and they still have a place here. Because I, you know, I think that, and even the data still says that Florida still wins no matter what. We know that when it comes to retirement population, but the close second and third are really still the south southern states, including, by the way, the Carolinas and Georgia. But we do see at least older residents uh, staying here in Connecticut and, and getting older here, here as well. Yeah, you know, uh, it's very interesting. And um, I, I do wonder how related that is, Jonathan, to some of the data that shows, however, that, um, you, you know, we haven't had a net out migration um, where, you know, we just barely hung on to be to 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 not be losing population. But it seems as though we are losing the more affluent, um, you know, and gaining less affluent. And um, and so it makes you sort of wonder whether more affluent people are feeling the pinch of the taxes and the estate laws and the fact we're the only people with a gift tax and all that. And they are hanging on for six months minus a day because it is such a beautiful state. And it makes you wonder how if, if people seem to want to be here, it, it makes you wonder what it would do and how great it would be if the legislature would just rethink a couple of things like the gift tax, like the estate tax, and what it would do for all these other things in the state, you know, things like the sales tax, things like, you know, what it would do for our nonprofits or income or, you know, all kinds of different things, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that out because I really try to emphasize that, you know, economists know this already, right? That generation that's going to be making the most income tend to be, you know, 40 to 60. Right. Because of course, you're on a fixed income, generally speaking, not all the time, but once you're in your 70s and 80s. And then for those who are younger under 40, it's rare they're going to make any kind of income at the rate right. that will be older. So that's a key demographic that I don't think, and I was trying to emphasize on purpose with my piece, that tends to be overlooked um, because, you know, developers, investors, officials, they're always looking towards empty nesters to consider residing in specific places. Um, and then they're always looking towards younger generations, those in their 20s and 30s, hoping that they stay and remain there. But what do you do about the people who are making generally the most income in that prime time when they do? And what can you do to keep them there? That's kind of the big question I'd love to know in terms of incentivizing uh, people to remain here. And I agree with you. I think confronting or at least addressing what to do about some of these reforms that relate to taxes, even property tax reform for that matter. Yep. What about the car tax? Um, you know, and I know that obviously with the Lamont administration and the General Assembly trying to tackle or at least reducing the income taxes a start, but I that's only a half percent. We know there's going to be a few hundred bucks a year. You know, I think something's got to be a little bit more than just that. 
Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, you put your finger exactly on it. We're, we're losing the people in the prime earning years. Right. And, and I mean, that should be telling policymakers something that, you know, for whatever reason, oh, gee, I wonder what it is. It seems as though people at their peak find somewhere else to be. Which is why I kind of said it'd be an interesting testing point to revisit this, let's say, five years from now, was a new generation. So it's no longer, let's say, Gen X. What does that mean for the millennials? Like another, I don't know, five, 10 years. Is it going to be the same thing where we see a dropping off point? You know, right. There's, right. A, there's a pattern here. And there's something to be said about that with our state because we didn't tackle it then and we could be tackling it now. Yes. Yes. Um, so is there anything else that you think is important for people to think about as we move forward on these livability issues? Um, yes, you know, we'd value any other insights you'd care to leave us with. I appreciate that. Um, well, I think some people know I was a, uh, you know, on the city plan commission here in New Haven, uh, for at least one term. And, uh, you know, it's one thing for me to be teaching economic development, following the ideas of planners and the zoners, quite another to, you know, step up and be involved. So I would tell your listeners and, and membership to do consider getting involved directly in your towns when it comes to these issues around planning and zoning concerns. And it doesn't mean actually you have to run for it or even get nominated. Attend the meetings, know what's going on, read and pay attention to um, these concerns. And, and I would hope um, that there also be a consideration for these towns and cities to come up with a, a plan. Uh, too often, a lot of these cities and towns don't think long-term into the future. And I think an ideal thing is to listen and pay attention to proposals or plans in the future, because traditionally, a lot of towns and cities, but not all, will have some kind of blueprint as to the future, uh, what it'll be for the next 10 years. And I think it's really, really critical that these towns and cities find a pathway so that they are thinking long-term planning. It's one thing to be addressing these kind of you know smaller issues as it relates to zoning and planning matters, but it's another thing to be thinking big scale and thinking and predicting for the future. Well, I think that's good advice. And getting involved is always the best advice. Absolutely. So, Professor Jonathan Wharton, Southern Connecticut State University. We are so grateful to you, columnist at Hearst and all around wise man, really. You write, you talk, you explain things to a lot of people in the state. And we are very, very grateful to you for having been with us today on YCT Matters. Thank you for having me on, Carol. You bet. I hope you'll come back and be with us again. And as, all right. And as always, we're grateful to you, our listeners, for joining us. This is Carol Platt-Lebow. We hope you'll join us again for another edition of YCT Matters. I'll show